Hello, my name is Peter McMillan. I'm the Chief Executive Officer at NT Shelter here in Darwin. I'd like to acknowledge we're broadcasting from the lands of the Larrakia people here in Darwin, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And also my respects to other Aboriginal First Nations people who may be watching or listening to this podcast across Australia or elsewhere. Welcome. Today's another episode of Sharing the Couch, and it's a real pleasure to have with us today Fiona York. Uh, Fiona has been with uh, Housing for the Aged Action Group since 2016 uh, and in the Chief Executive Officer role since 2018. She's worked in the aged care sector and with seniors for almost 20 years now, specifically in elder abuse for around four years. Her previous roles have included Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria, where she was a senior project worker on issues including elder abuse prevention and seniors participation, with Senior Rights Victoria, with the Elder Abuse Referral Pathways, Bass Coast Community Health Interagency Partnerships, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, but Duta Gala Community Health Capacity Building in Mental Health Consumers, Department of Health Protocol Development in Home and Community Care Assessment in East Gippsland in Victoria, and the Gibson Lakes Community Health Home and Community Care Assessment Project where she was a volunteer support project. Also with Gibson Regional Palliative Care Consortium in Service Mapping, Fiona has a Bachelor of Arts, as well as a Graduate Certificate in Ethics and Legal Studies, and Graduate Certificate in Regional Community Development as well. Fiona, a very warm welcome to the program. Thanks for sharing the couch. Oh, thank you. And I should say that I'm joining from Wiradjuri Country in um, Victoria. Wonderful. And just when I was reading out, a few references there to Gippsland. That's uh, Western, Western Melbourne, is it? Gippsland? Oh, no, east of Melbourne. East of, east of Melbourne. Yeah, so, yeah, East East Gippsland is an area of Victoria that's probably one of the remoter areas um, of the state. It's right up near the border of New South Wales and it encompasses a really large area of mainly kind of forested mountainous area and some beautiful coast as well. So lots of little remote towns and communities. Yeah, lovely. I often get grampians and... Uh... Uh, mixed up, so thanks for clarifying that. Um, so if you're just getting started, I said in the intro that you studied in the area of ethics and legal studies and also as well as regional community development. Tell us about that, you know, what what appealed, uh, what was the appeal in that? What attracted you to those areas of study work? I think from very early on, um, I've had an interest in social justice and trying to ensure that the systems that are um, unequal, I guess, and, and um, unfair are addressed in a systemic way. And looking at that through the lens of ethics and the legal system and also through regional community development has been a framework that I've tried to apply in all of my work, which is basically taking the responsibility away from the individual in terms of, um, you know, blaming themselves or finding fault with them in terms of where they've ended up and looking at the systems that may be a disadvantaging people. And having that lens has really assisted in a range of different areas of my work, but particularly around housing and homelessness and in elder abuse, because I think there's so much stigma um, around both of those topics that sometimes people can feel 
that it's all their fault. But if you've got this sort of bigger picture lens, which my studies helped me develop, it allows you to be able to see some of the things that are causing that outside the, the, the individual. So I've always been attracted to social justice causes since since youth and um, and in my work I've been lucky enough to be able to apply those as well. So in terms of advocacy, uh, I mean, I in the area of ethics uh, especially, I mean, there's some really strong frameworks you can use there uh, from a social justice lens and in terms, I guess, of what's the right thing to do uh, as, mm. as far as ethics is concerned. Does it, how have you felt over the last 10 to 20 years where there's been, seems to be an increasing amount of talk around the economic case for changes in social programs? Does that, does that kind of bother you or bug you a little bit that we may be moving away a little bit from what's the right thing to do to what's the cost effective thing to do? Yeah, I think we're living in that system where um, that capitalist system where where it is about money and cost effectiveness, and that is a real problem in the housing issue where housing is seen as an investment for a small cohort of people and not a human right and not something that allows people to be able to age well. And so, um, when you're looking at at housing as or anything through the through the lens of the economic benefit, you're missing some of the social benefits and. We've been lucky enough to be able to try and measure some of those benefits, um, but unfortunately having to measure societal benefits or health and wellbeing benefits in terms of a dollar cost is a real trap, I think, and it's something that we get into because we're trying to make a case for funding, but um, but actually what are we doing with our, with our resources that we have as a society and who are we assisting and who's missing out? And, and I think, uh, unfortunately, we do often have to frame things around economics, um, but ideally, we should be looking at it, in my, from my point of view, as a more holistic way of looking at things. How does it interact with people and the environment and where we live? How do you, how do you find we compare with, with other countries in that area? Do you think we, we're similar to most Western democracies in having that conversation that involves the economics to a greater extent now? Or do you think that's peculiar to Australia and, and countries? No, I think it's a global yeah, unfortunately, I think it's global and I think a lot of the drivers of disadvantage are a global issue driven by, you know, multinational corporations who are seeking profit a lot of the time. And unfortunately, the divide, as we know, even today, there was some data that came out about the divide between the rich and the poor and the haves and the have-nots, and that's that's growing all over the world. Um and I think it's driven by factors that are much bigger than us, unfortunately. Um, and it's a global problem that all of us need to tackle together, I think. Right. Now, Fiona, we are getting a little bit of latency in the in the broadcast. Uh, there's a little bit of picture framing, framing, but I'm still getting your voice coming through loud and clear, and it's not too bad. So I think we'll we'll, we'll persist and, um, and see okay. how we go. Um, in terms of the areas specifically around home and community care and, and the work you've done with, with older people, how, how did you get into that area specifically? What attracted you there? How did that opportunity come up? I think it was just coincidence and luck in a lot of ways. Um, I was living in a relatively remote area of Victoria. It's not remote as in Northern Territory type remote, but for us it's quite remote in that um, the place where I was living, there was, you know, a few hundred k's between each town and, and services. And over the time, over the last 20 years or so, we've seen services retract from the regional areas and into the cities. And so there's less doctors, there's less banks, there's less, you know, community services generally, there's less transport and the population's ageing. 
Um, a lot of young people are having to leave the areas to go into the cities um, to get education and to get jobs. And, for example, in one of the towns that I worked in, there wasn't anybody in the country fire authority that was under the age of 75, including the truck drivers. Mm. Um, so we're seeing an ageing population that is much more magnified in rural and regional Australia. And so for that reason, a lot of the jobs that were available were in working with older people. And so I fell into that almost by accident, but it's something that I'm really passionate about. I love working with older people um, and it's become my whole life's work now. But back then it was really just a coincidence because that happened to be what was available at, at the time. Um, and the home and community care program that I was working in at, at the time basically no longer exists. Um, in, in the form that it was then, but it was a really local and community-driven service where older people were able to receive services in their homes to enable them to basically stay out of residential aged care. And it was delivered by bush nurses, community health centres, local government, and older people knew where to get help. Um, they went to the council and they asked and they got assistance, and it was quite streamlined and simple and um, now we've seen a shift into a lot more of an online format where people have to register and it's very difficult and there's a lot of barriers. And because there's no profit margin, a lot of those local um, providers have gotten out um, and there's big workforce issues as well, in particularly in regional Victoria um, or regional Australia. So that program was fantastic and it unfortunately we've seen it deplete over time. Um, so now it's harder and harder for older people to access services in the home. Yeah, okay. And for those people who are working in, in the broader human services industry uh, and maybe considering working um, with older people, obviously you said you really like that. What 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 would be the what, what have you found to be the rewarding aspects of working with that cohort of people in particular? Sorry, you broke up a little bit there. What was the yeah. last part of that question, working with older people? Yeah, what have you found to be satisfying and rewarding in terms of that work? You obviously enjoy that. Can you expand on that, what, yeah. what it is that you enjoy? Um, I think there's so much ageism in our society and older people are often not listened to and forgotten about and dismissed and ignored a lot of the time. But if you are working with older people, you realise that a lot of the myths that are common about older people aren't true and it comes from our ageist assumptions around people's capacity as they get older. Um, and one of the things that I heard recently from the Victorian Seniors Commissioner is that when you're 60 years old, you have a third of your life to live. So it's not over when you're 60. And a lot of older people uh, just have so much knowledge and experience and are doing so much in terms of what um, activities and involving themselves. Our committee of management, we've got three or four people in their 80s. Everybody's over 60 just about. So I have no doubt that older people have a lot of capacity and able to contribute to society and should be um, welcomed as a really important part of society and not sort of forgotten about um, and ignored. And I've seen it happen where an older person will be standing in a shop and the younger person will be served ahead of them. Or in an elder abuse context, 
um, you know, people will speak to the adult children rather than the older person themselves, assuming that the older the adult children have the best interests of the older person at heart. And that's not necessarily the case. So it's just that kind of diminishing and lack of respect that happens. Um, but for me, I really enjoy working with older people. I love sitting down and having a chat and I like taking the time to hear people's stories. Um, and I like trying to support people to be able to have a voice um, just particularly to the decision makers where they can be, you know, able to influence for the better. Absolutely. So, you know, when you're in like retail and you're just getting, sorry, just got a little bit of playback. So when you're in retail and you see, um, you know, a, a shopkeeper come up to someone and to an older person and explain to them how technology works, thinking they, they don't understand, that's a real misunderstanding sometimes. You know, it's a gross assumption that, uh, that uh, not pe older people won't be savvy enough to uh, partake in all the things that the rest of us do in society, those, those stereotypes. That's right. Um, so in terms of housing um, Age Action Group or HAG as, as it's often known as, so that, I understand that came from grassroots beginnings around 30 years ago and you've got over uh, 400 members, which is a very strong membership base. Can you tell us a little bit about HAG and the work that, um, that you do? Yeah, I should update you a little bit with that. We started, this is our 40th anniversary. We started in 1983 wow. um, and we have about 800 members now. So we're growing. Um, it was started by a group of older tenants um, in Victoria who were concerned about the plight of people on the age pension who were living in private rental, um, who basically were falling through the gaps in terms of that, that issue being recognised. So... Back then and even today, there's an assumption that everybody of that age group owns their own homes. And if you're on the age pension and you do own your own home and you don't have any mortgage to pay, you can basically manage if you're frugal with the amount of money that you get. But if you have to pay your housing costs, rent and mortgage, then you're in real trouble. And so these older renters back then had the foresight to realise that this was an issue. And so they formed Housing for the Aged Action Group and they really strongly advocated for older people's housing to be front and centre in the minds of policymakers. So it wasn't just about um, people fleeing family violence or younger people, which is absolutely important as well. Everybody needs housing. But older people, they thought, were being forgotten about um, and there was assumptions made about home ownership and, and ageing um, that wasn't true according to the research that they undertook themselves. So they did their own research back then, published a whole bunch of papers um, and spoke to older renters about what it was like to be an older pensioner paying the rent. Um, and back then there was only about, I think, 900-odd people on the social housing wait list. Um, and so because of their advocacy, we now have things in Victoria that we don't have in other states. One of those things is a priority access for public housing if you're 55 plus. Um, another is 55 plus specific housing, um, public housing. And we also have some, um, some better laws around um, the types of housing which where people own the dwelling and they lease the land. So we've got a we've got a special part of our Residential Tenancies Act that deals with that type of housing as well. And all of that is a result of the advocacy of HAG members over the last 40 years. That's terrific, uh, Fiona. And what what do you, what's this, what does 55s and over housing look like? What would how would that be different from normal uh, housing, for example? 
So some of it is high-rises. Um, we have quite a few older persons high-rises in Victoria, but we also have low-rise units um, where there's, you know, 10 to 12 units in a small cluster. All of the tenants are over 55. Um, and so often they have quite good social connections and a community around them as well. Some of our members live in that type of housing and, and have built their own community through talking to their neighbours and supporting each other. Um, it's accessible. So around 50% of the clients that come to our service have got a housing issue because mobility is, a, is an issue for them. And so that can be something like, They've been discharged from hospital and all of a sudden they can't manage the step over the bath or the hallways are too narrow for a walker, these sorts of things. So housing design is really important for older people. Um, and so 55 plus housing needs to be accessible. It needs to be able to, um, you know, you need to be able to get around if you have mobility issues. So they're the main differences, but most importantly for public housing, the rent is capped at 25% of your income and you can stay there as long as you need to. So you're not going to be evicted. Um, you're not going to have to move when you're in your 80s. Once you're there, you're there. And you know that your rent is not going to increase um, above 25% of your income. So it's affordable and it means that people can actually, you know, afford to live a good life. And in terms of the recent changes to the National uh, Construction Code or National Building Code around the silver standard for accessibility, I yeah. mean, how has that been received by your members in the sector? Yeah, they're thrilled. It's something that we've been advocating for for a long time. Unfortunately, like, not every state has ratified that. Um, so we're hoping that um, the whole country will have that. And it is for new builds. So we do need to address what we're going to do about retrofitting the oldest housing stock um, and ensuring that everybody has minimal, minimum accessibility standards, including low-cost rental, which we know from what our members and what our clients tell us is often quite run down and inaccessible. So we do need to have minimum standards um, for accessibility and also for environmental um, standards as well, given that we've got, you know, rising heat and people need to stay cool when they're older because their bodies can't regulate temperature as easily as younger people. So there are some specific things that we need for older people to ensure health and wellbeing. And I know that don't want to make too many sweeping, or I don't want to make too many sweeping generalisations, but as people um, increasingly get older in life and maybe um, become empty nesters um, uh, with children leaving the home and, and as people age, um, what's, what, what, what are you finding in terms of the extent to which people are looking to downsize? Maybe they've got a family home and they're looking to move into a small home or, or, or apartment or some other form of accommodation or do most people in your experience they kind of want to stay in their own home um even if i guess it's a bit bigger than lots of kids have left is there is there general patterns that we can learn for, in terms of what people's uh, preferences generally are for when they when they age we usually get people who are not in home ownership so we're getting people who don't have a home that they need to downsize from they usually don't have any home they're either um yeah you know, homeless, couch surfing, or else they're, um, they're in private rental they can't afford or they've been evicted from. So we don't have a great deal of people coming to us that need to downsize, but some of our retirement housing residents um, have downsized in the past and that's where retirement villages and other forms of retirement housing can be an attractive option. There's also, there's been talk in the past of things like seniors, flatmates sharing and things like that. Um, and that can be an option for people, but we would never 
we were, we were not broker that arrangement because we think sometimes it can be really fraught um, in terms of share housing as an older person. But yes, given the housing crisis, that's something else that people are considering. Okay, and in terms of um, the general picture for um, older older people who, uh, as far as their housing needs being met or not being met and homelessness, how are we faring? And specifically, how are we faring for that group of, say, women mm -hmm. aged over 55 years now that seems to be a priority cohort of concern? Yeah, so the latest census data shows that um, there's hundreds of thousands of people who are 55 plus who are renting in private rental or who are close to retirement age without having paid off their mortgage. So this is a change. This is this has changed over the last 10 years. So in the past, as I was saying, the Australian aged care pension system is makes an assumption that you own your own home and, and therefore your cost of living um, is able to be maintained by the aged pension. But increasingly, that's not the case. And we've seen a jump over the last 10 years in that, in that cohort of renters and people that haven't paid off their mortgage. And given the rent costs and the, the astronomical um, increases over the last few years, um, we are having people coming to us every day who are, have rented for a long, long time and managed and are now no longer able to afford the rent or they're anticipating that they're about to get another rent increase and they don't think they can afford it or else they've fallen into rent arrears and they're actually receiving notices to vacate or eviction notices because they can't pay the rent. So those people aren't counted in the homelessness statistics. Um, homelessness statistics is often the more visible homeless. It's, it's people that are rough sleeping and sleeping in their cars and in, um, in rooming houses and boarding houses um, or in temporary accommodation, emergency housing, whereas the cohort of people, and this includes a lot of older women, that come to our service are those people that are more hidden. And we saw it in covid um, when all of a sudden people who had been pet sitting and house sitting and things like that to manage their housing um, situation, those options dried up and all of a sudden they were having to come to us or to try and find friends and family to stay with. So there's a lot of people out there who are older and it's not a great place to be when you're in your 80s, 70s and 80s, to be having to call on the couches of your friends and family for somewhere to live. Um, also having, you know, older women sleeping in their cars with their pets, it's just, it's not a great situation for them. Um, and so we're definitely seeing the demand increase on our service and the statistics are backing that. Um, and we can only imagine that this is going to keep getting worse as the rent costs increase and the rental availabilities decrease. And what sort of solutions? I know we need more housing generally, but yeah, specifically we, for, yeah. for the group of people you represent, what sort of, what might that look like? Well, we really strongly advocate for more public housing. Um, so there's not going to be a market solution. The market's not going to solve the housing issue for the people that are on the lowest incomes who are in private rental now. Um, and there's at least 200,000 of them that are 55 plus. So the, we believe that the government has a responsibility to provide those people with long-term affordable accessible housing um, and that has a cost benefit as we were talking before because of that it keeps people out of emergency hospitals it keeps them out of residential aged care it means that they can contribute to society in a whole bunch of ways all of the volunteering and all of the work that's done behind the scenes it can't happen 
if people have insecure housing and they're stressing about where they're going to go next. So we think that bare minimum, we need a lot more public housing owned and run by government that can support those people. Um, and then the people that are um, that are in rentals, I mean, in mortgage stress, um, and the people that have got too many assets and, and they're not eligible for public housing or, or they might have superannuation but not enough to buy a house, then we can start looking at other models um, which a lot there's a lot of models out there. So um, cooperative housing, co-housing, um, shared equity models, all of those sorts of things. But we do have to keep in mind that for older people, any type of thing that requires a bank loan or um, you know the government perhaps providing the deposit and the person getting the loan, it doesn't work for older people because the banks won't loan to older people. Um, and so that's a real barrier for a lot of the shared equity models that have been put forward by government and by others. So our position is we need public housing to be able to support those um, in the lowest incomes that are in private rental now, um, and then we can look at other models to support everybody else. And in terms of uh, that public additional public housing, we're talking there about mm. supporting supporting independent living, aren't we? Or all independent living with supports rather yeah. than rather than congregate housing or hostels and things like that. We're talking more about proper housing, independent apartments. That's Pro right. With proper that's amenities. that's that's what our members want. Yeah. So members have told us what they want. Um, they don't want temporary emergency housing. They don't want to be having to share kitchens and bathrooms with a whole lot of people where they can't stay for as long as they need to stay. Yeah. They want to be able to maintain independence. And as you get older, you might need some supports in the home. Um, you might need assistance with shopping. You might need assistance with cleaning. You might need assistance with meal preparation. All of those things can be provided if you have stable housing. Mm -hmm. If you don't have stable housing, it's very hard to get those supports in. And then what happens is the crisis system has to pick that up and that's a lot more expensive um, so that's why we believe fundamentally there needs to be more housing um, that's affordable you know long term and um, then people can start thinking about what else needs to happen to remain living independently yeah and one of the things that your lobbying has done is it's, it's helped change policy and uh, instigated a parliamentary review of the retirement housing sector can you take us through that? And, of course, we've also had the Royal Commission to Aged Care Quality and Safety as well. What is the future yeah. of the retirement housing sector? What's your, what's, your, what's your, I guess, prognosis of that? Yeah, I think the retirement housing sector encompasses a lot of, lot of different types of housing. So um, we're talking about the sort of things that might spring to mind are the, the higher-end retirement villages, which are often quite expensive and they might, you know, have um, kind of a resort-type vibe where there's pools and there's golf courses and things like that. Um, but the sorts of retirement housing that often get forgotten about are what are called in Victoria residential parks, but they're also called manufactured homes in other states. Um, and that's where the person owns the dwelling, owns the, you know, the cabin or, um, or the, the two- or three-bedroom home, and then they lease the land that it sits on. And um, it's, a, it's an attractive form of housing um, for older people because it is affordable, but it's pretty fraught because there's a lot of different contracts, um, there's a lot of different rules, there's a lot of different providers, and there's a very big range of management from very good to very bad, but not much regulation and not much dispute resolution. So if something goes wrong, it's really difficult for older people to get a resolution. 
So we think there needs to be reform um, for that sector in particular because it's not very well known and it's also, um, yeah, it is where people, older people enjoy living a lot of the time because, you know, there's a community around them and, and, um, and it is a place where older people would like to retire. The other type of housing that has been in decline since the 80s but is another attractive option is independent living units um, and they used to be run by, um, you know, small not-for-profits or church groups or, you know, the Lions Club or the RSLs, things like that. And they'd be um, a type of affordable housing where you didn't need to have a deposit to move in, you could stay there. Unfortunately, they also have been in decline over the, over the years and they really have very variable ways of accessing them. Um, some of them have been taken over by community housing providers, which is a much more clear-cut and, and obvious way to sort of get into that housing um, and often has better standards in terms of management as well. But um, some of them have been turned into residential aged care or nursing homes or they've just been sold off altogether. So that type of housing, again, is in decline. And broadly speaking, we think there needs to be a range of options for older people because not, they're not all the same. They all want to have different things. Um, generally speaking, though, they do want to remain in the communities where, they, where they're familiar, close to their services that they know, public transport, um, and it does need to be minimum standards in terms of accessibility and affordability. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting space because there are some quite big providers that operate in lots of different states. Um, but the, the range of options is quite variable. And for a lot of residents, they do have problems and they don't know where to go for help. So we need some reform either in the, at the state level or the federal level to make sure there's some consistency and there's some options for older people who are living in that type of housing. And, and with, um, the, um, uh, with the federal government's uh, range of housing policies uh, out at the moment, including some for uh, home home purchase assistance so for example with as little as five percent and they take away the need to get lenders mortgage insurance by helping top up that deposit when you're in an environment where you're say 50 or 55 years and over um even if you can get help with getting the deposit together because the government's helping bridge that gap what's the level of interest for your average person 55 years of over in terms of getting involved with a mortgage especially in the current circumstance with interest rates and that at the moment I think people would be quite happy if they had that option, but the banks won't loan to them. So the banking laws themselves stop that from happening. Um, so there's people that maybe have got uh, money after a divorce or they may have been in home ownership and have fallen out of home ownership and they they can pay a mortgage. They, you know, they're paying that amount on rent anyway, but they're not actually able to, to get in to the market. So that's the problem, I think, is that there are some big barriers like the banking laws, um, and that's why those sorts of models don't really work. And then when they do pull their resources and try to form cooperative housing or co-housing type models, there's a lot of barriers for that as well. Um, and we do have a group of older women who are very keen to sort of establish some of those, but they're finding it really difficult. And it will be interesting to see what options there are um, to try and reduce some of the barriers for getting those types of housing um, options off the ground under the banner of affordable housing, which at the moment is targeting the key worker cohort, but could also potentially um, target some of the some of the other cohorts as well. In the latest um, Australian Bureau of Statistics census in 2021 in the Northern Territory, we saw our um, 55s and over 
uh, age brackets increase in terms of the uh, estimated homelessness by 13%. What's happening yeah. there? Why is, why is that group growing? Why is it continuing to grow uh, where some other cohorts are remaining the same or, 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 or maybe increasing by a smaller margin? What's happening with that group in particular? I think it's the ageing population is one major thing. So the population of Australia is getting older um, and so therefore we are seeing increased numbers in all of the cohorts. But we're also seeing people falling out of, of um, private rental and falling out of home ownership because of the high costs. So I think when we had a look at the Northern Territory statistics, it was something like a third of people aged 55 plus were in private rental, um, which is quite high. It, it means that, um, you know, all of those people are likely to be paying, what, 60%, 70% of their income on rent if they're on the age pension or even on JobSeeker, um, which a lot of people over 50 are as well. So we know that there's a lot of people in rental stress, and, yes, this means that they are going to be showing up in the homelessness statistics more. But you need to also consider the ones that aren't going to be showing up, those ones that are in private rental and are struggling with a mortgage. So, yeah, I think it's a function of the ageing population, the low rental availability and the high rental costs um, that are pushing people into homelessness. And when you hear about programs such as the Social Housing Accelerator Program and uh, and also the Housing Australia Future Fund, uh, there's some, you know, the, the numbers are, they're a start um, in the Northern Territory 1,200 homes, uh, I was saying to a reporter earlier, is a big deal for us in Northern Territory because our numbers are a lot smaller. Yeah. So it's about 20% of our urban waitlist, which will be a game changer, <clears throat> excuse me, for us. How do you see those kind of programs and how would you ensure that um, the group of people that you represent are going to be seen as a priority group because there are lots of other priority groups, aren't there, priority cohorts yeah. as well? Yeah. You got any views yeah. around that? Yeah, I think it's absolutely essential. We definitely need both of those things to be happening. We need more social housing to be built. And when we say social, we're talking about public and community housing. We think there needs to be growth in both. Um, so there needs to be growth in public housing and growth in community housing. Both of those both of those types of housing are really, really important for the most vulnerable people. And yes, we need definitely need more of it. We would like to see some earmarked for people aged 55 plus. Um, because we think there's some specific issues there around older people. But that's not to say that we want to pit cohorts against each other. We shouldn't be fighting over the scraps here. We should be lifting everybody up. And so if we had enough housing, um, it, it wouldn't matter if you were fleeing family violence, if you were Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, if you were age 55 plus, it wouldn't matter because we would have enough for everyone. Um, and I think that is the key thing that we need to be working towards, a society where everybody can afford to live in a house <laughs> that's safe and secure. So, yes, absolutely support um, more federal government funding to the states to be building that housing as quickly as possible um, because we're in a real crisis. I'm curious when you talk about the special housing needs of the of older people, um, what's the experience yeah. that, that you're hearing when um, people who maybe have the capacity for private rental uh, in the in the market, are they facing discrimination? Uh, like, for example, we know often that yeah. younger people face discrimination um, and First Nations people uh, sadly also do. What about older people? Do they face challenges in getting yeah. access to renting properties? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the... One of the barriers is that everything's online. <laughs> so, and a lot of that is, is not just about digital literacy because we often think that, you know, older people are less digitally literate and that can be 
definitely true, but it's also about poverty. So being able to afford the internet to be able to make the applications. Some people haven't been needing to apply for housing for many, many years. They've lived stably in, in private rental for a long time and it's only recently that they've had to apply. Realestate.com didn't exist back then. So it's it's hard for people to be, be able to understand how to make those changes. And yes, an old, particularly a single older person on the pension is a less, a less attractive prospect than two young people that have got jobs, obviously. So um, even though it's more income than someone on JobSeeker, so young people on JobSeeker or youth allowance are even more discriminated against in terms of income. But, yes, they're discriminated against, A, because of the barriers to access the private rentals to start with, and B, because they can't compete. Um, and so we hear all the time you know, rental bidding and things like this just really pushes people out um, and and just being able to access that very first step of finding a house and making an application and getting your ID together and getting your references together. It's a big process um, and it's daunting and overwhelming. Now, I do wonder if if that's if services are thinking about head leasing and taking on that relationship with the um, with the real estate agents so that um, they can then put the tenants in that meet their um, criteria without having to subject the older people through that uh, through that ordeal. Yeah, I, I think though fundamentally with the rental laws the way they are, where people can be evicted basically at any time yeah. um, and that the rents can increase at any time, it's not going to be secure even if you do get in. Um, yeah. So that's why we're advocating mainly to get people out of private rental into something better um, because yeah. it's just not a long-term solution. Got that tenure, yeah. And in terms of um, the assistance that... Um, older people need when they're at risk of homelessness especially do they find that yeah. the services that are available from let's just say mainstream specialist homelessness services do they do they get the job done in terms of their needs or are there specific needs that the i guess the standard providers aren't able to to offer we advocate for a specialist older person's housing service and that's what Home at Last is in Victoria and we'd like to see one in every state because we do think that older people have specialist requirements. Um, one of those things is the time taken. So it does take longer often with older people. They may be barriers that you need to address. Um, some of those barriers are easier to address when it's face-to-face. And the crisis homelessness system, at least in our experience down here, is it's under so much pressure. Um, there's people queuing up out the door every morning that people have to deal with and they just don't have the time to be able to make the applications, to be able to get the ID together, to be able to get the doctor's letters and the support letters and all of those things that make the applications the best possible application. So that's what our service does. It, it sits down with older people um, over the phone or face-to-face -face or even meeting at a cafe or at a shopping centre or in the person's home um, and goes through all of the eligibility, what we can possibly help them with um, and then assist them with getting the paperwork together, making the application. Um, and if they do get a housing offer um, in public and community housing, and we usually house around 150 people a year in that type of housing, um, we will then assist them to view the property, to sign the paperwork, to get the keys to move in. And then once they're settled in, we assist them with linking in with whatever aged care supports they need in the home oh, as well and social supports. So that type, of, that type of support only a specialist service can provide. And we do... We do think that it has good outcomes. It's been shown over and over again that it has good outcomes. And we don't think that the crisis system can 
can adequately support people. And it's not because they don't want to. It's just because of the sheer volume of people they have coming through their doors. Um, so that's that's why we advocate for specialised services. I think that's that point's really well made. And you can't expect, I guess, a generalist um, frontline SHS employee to be right across all the different ranges of aged care packages and, and, and programs and stuff. And types of different. housing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that's that's down in Victoria. And I'm glad you mentioned. It. I did want to ask you what Home at Last was about. So is that a, is that a program yeah. that that's is that like a non-government program that that you run or one of your members runs? And is it like funded by the Victorian government to provide a service? Yeah. So it's funded mainly by the Victorian government. We also get some um, federal funding through Aged Care um, under the Carefinder program, which is assisting people to connect with services. Um, so. Basically, um, as I said, we house around 150, 160 people a year in mainly public and community housing, but also retirement housing. Um, so that low cost retirement housing that I mentioned earlier. And we have an early intervention approach. So part of the role of our workers is to provide community education um, to older people to say, listen, think about your housing future. Um, if you're in private rental now and you're managing, that's great, but you may not be able to long-term. What happens if your needs change? What happens if you, your mobility reduces? All of that sort of stuff. And start making a plan early because the earlier you get in, the better it is. Less There is a wait time, um, and so it's better to get in early. So our early intervention work, we specifically work with culturally and linguistically diverse people through community leaders and partnerships. So we have a team of bilingual volunteers and bilingual workers who deliver information around what homelessness means, trying to reduce the stigma um, and trying to get people to understand the different housing circumstances and housing options. And we do that in their first language with translated materials and then we direct them to come into the service to have a chat about their options. So those community leaders are so, so important for us to reach the most vulnerable people because there's a mistrust and, and, you know, a lack of awareness of how to navigate the system. And so that's why we need we need those bilingual workers there. Um, we've done the same thing with the LGBTIQA plus community. So we have a um, LGBTI work, uh, community reference group and they we did a big survey, over 200, like 230 people, um, 50 years and older from the LGBTI community and asked them about their housing circumstances. Um, and we found that there was a really high number of people who were living alone, who had caring responsibilities, who had disabilities, who were living in private rental and had hardly any awareness of where to go for help. Um, and so we realised that this was a problem and now we have this community reference group that's assisting us to reach people that may not consider themselves homeless, they may manage their whole lives, um, and we try to direct them again into a service. We have a rainbow ticket accreditation, so um, we know that we're a safe place for people to come um, and just start by chatting about options and then you can make the decision about where you want to take it from there. So that's that's the model, we early intervention and then housing support and then once they've been housed, we um, try to link them in with, with as many kind of social supports as they may need. And some of those social supports include becoming a member of HAG and then coming back in and becoming an advocate for housing in your own community as well. So we have we have that too. 
that's brilliant, Fiona. There's so much great work you're doing down there at HAG. And one of the things I just want to ask you about also, uh, you've partnered with some great organisations too. I noticed with the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria, Council on the Ageing, the University of Queensland Institute for Science, Social Science Research, and the University of Adelaide, Centre for Housing, Urban and Regional Planning. Can you tell us about that? What are they, what's the importance of working with those kind of groups? What does that bring to the table? Yeah. So our partnership with the Ethnic Communities Council really kicked off our work with the called communities. Um, and so um, we used census data to identify um, the cohorts that weren't in home ownership, so living in private rental, speaking a language other than English at home, and age 55 plus for us was a bit of a red flag. So they assisted us with brokering partnerships with the ethnic um, ethno-specific organisations that we still to this day partner with. And as a result of that work, consistently over the last, say, seven or eight years, we've had um, 50 to 60% of our clients are from a called background. Um, so we know that that's been really, really successful. In the first couple of months of that project, the referrals increased something like 300%, just, just through word of mouth. Um, so we know that that's a really good model. In terms of our partnerships with the researchers, it's really important for us to have data, good data. And so at the moment, we're partnering with Swinburne University in Melbourne, um, University of Western Sydney, New South Wales, and um, Curtin University in Western Australia, and looking at the census data and trying to unpack what are the housing circumstances for older people according to the census, and what does that mean if you're ageing in housing insecurity. So we use that data all the time in all of our submissions, in all of our talk, you know, whenever we speak to decision makers and government. But we also support that with the voices of lived experience or people that have actually experienced the issue. Um, so, for example, for Homelessness Week coming up in a few weeks, um, we're bringing a delegation of eight older women who have experienced housing stress and homelessness. We're going to launch the research and we're going to try and speak to as many decision makers as we can because we think the voice of lived experience is absolutely vital. You can't shy away from the truth that these women are telling about their circumstances and their experiences, but we also are backing it with the data. And that's why it's so important to have a data and story together is a really important advocacy tool for change. So that's the model that we're that we do in all of our work, um, partnerships with research institutes and the lived experience voice um, to, to really have a strong argument to try and hearts and minds is what we're trying to what we're trying to do is change people's hearts and minds. Fantastic. And I know that my team's always keen to uh, talk to your staff uh, either up here or when they're when they're traveling up here on the phone around uh, growing our understanding of the needs of of older people. Um, so if, if uh, any people listening into this or, or watching would like to find a little bit more about your organisation and the great advocacy and work that you're doing, um, how can they find out? You've got a website, obviously. They can jump, you know? yeah, jump on the website, um, oldertenants.org.au. Um, we're on nearly all the socials. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Um, we haven't done TikTok yet, but we'll get there. Um, and <laughs> we're also on Mastodon. Yeah, we're on Mastodon now as well. Um, so we're definitely across all of the social media and you're also welcome to just give us a call. Um, if you look on our website, you'll see you can either hit the button that says I want change or I need help. If you hit I want change, then all of the advocacy work that we do is there. And if you're interested in having a chat about the statistics or the data or any of our research papers, that's the place to have a look. 
Yeah, no, that's wonderful. And I, I can say, you know, I've hopped on and looked at some of your advocacy. Uh, it's, it's available online and it's, uh, it's it's very heavily driven by data and evidence, as you said. It's, it's, it's really quality stuff. So congratulations on all the amazing work that you and your team are doing there. The growth of your members too. I mean, wow, it's gone up to 800, far cry from the last time we looked. So um, you're doing yeah. great work down there. It's very important. And um, the, the thing that was refreshing to me is that I think a lot of us uh, as advocates are, are basically coming back to the same premise that we need more social and affordable housing, um, you know, yeah. and that needs to be done at scale. There are other ways we can do that. It's going to save us costs uh, across a whole range of other areas. It's a smart, smart thing to do. We just need to get on with it and get it done and done in That's a way true. that meets the needs of our particular cohorts uh, as well. So thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing the couch. Thank you so much for your time. I'd like to uh, thank once again Fiona York, who's the Chief Executive Officer at Housing for the Age Action Group joining us today. Thank you for listening into this uh, podcast or watching online and, and be sure to check out our other uh, episodes we've done on Sharing the Couch. I think we're up to about uh, 26 now. So we're getting we're getting there and yeah. um, we've had some really good other conversations. So check it out. If you like the if you like the broadcast, then make sure you hit the subscribe or like button. It, it helps more people see it as well. So thanks for joining us. Until next time, bye. You've been listening to episode 11, season 2 of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.